Will you pray with me? Descend upon us, Holy Spirit, we pray. And open our hearts that we may hear the gospel and conform our lives to the good news. Prepare us to be fit for salvation and inspire us to spread the kingdom. For Christ's name's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the beautiful aspects of Holy Scripture, and indeed one of the more challenging dynamics of Holy Scripture, is that it does a very, very good job of exposing the secrets of our hearts. How many times have we thought something like this? God is surely going to get them. They really got what they deserved. Or they sure had it coming, didn't they? It is indeed a thorny theological game that we play when we look at a situation or a circumstance and we make definitive judgments about the mind of God, especially where they are concerned, whoever they may be. But friends, it is a deadly, deadly theological enterprise to look at someone else's situation or circumstance and draw conclusions about our own standing before God on the basis of that kind of comparison. Because this, that, or the other has happened to someone else, and since this, that, or the other has not happened to me, they must be in real trouble with God, and I must be fine. And this is exactly the kind of foolish and fatal thinking that Jesus is exposing in the Scriptures this morning as revealed to us by two examples that He gives to us. The first issue that Jesus addresses is a theological circumstance where evidently a group of Jews who lived in Galilee had made some religious sacrifice to God and Pontius Pilate, who is an unscrupulous governor, for some reason unknown to us, has killed those Jews. And he's mixed the blood of their sacrifice with their own blood. One can imagine how offensive that would have been to the Jews, let alone to God himself. And in light of this event, the communal question, if you will, that seems to be on the table, seemed to involve the nature of their devotion to God. Why, why did Pilate kill those Jews? What was wrong with them? Was somehow their devotion lacking? Was their offering, perhaps like Cain, somehow unsatisfactory? The second example involves a more natural circumstance, if you will, where 18 people were killed in Jerusalem when the Tower of Siloam fell upon them. What could have been wrong with those Jews, the people wondered, that this quote-unquote act of God took their lives? Was God somehow punishing them through this sort of natural disaster? And friends, none of us is immune to this kind of thinking. We've all compared our circumstances to that of another person. We've all judged our spiritual standing before God in light of another. And friends, simply put, this is not merely dangerous theological thinking. This is deadly theological thinking. For each individual standing before God has absolutely nothing to do with comparing ourselves against our neighbor 
And it has everything to do with God's love, His law, and His grace. And the good news in the gospel this morning is that Jesus reveals to us the remedy. He gives it to us. Do you think that they are worse sinners than everyone else? Do you think that they are more guilty than everyone else? If you find yourself thinking these things, if these are the secret thoughts that you hold in your heart, then I tell you this truth. Unless you repent. Unless you repent. Unless you repent, you will also die like these have died. Sadly, too many people still believe that their salvation depends on their relative state of goodness. I may not be as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. And since things seem to be going okay for me, or at least I'm not doing as bad as that guy or those people, then I must be alright as far as the big guy is concerned upstairs. I mean, that's such a common thought in the mind of people concerning salvation. And if we find ourselves somewhere in that spectrum of thinking, then I'm sorry to say that we have sorely missed the message of Christianity and misunderstood who Jesus is and why it is that He came to earth. See, the Bible is very plain. It's very plain about the human condition. From the beginning, ever since the first evil thought crept into the mind of man, and since the first evil deed was done against God, you and I have been trying to hide from Him. We've been trying to hide from Him. Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden, the Scriptures say. You and I try to hide our thoughts from Him even now as if that were possible. And Jesus is warning us this morning that that's spiritually perilous. We can't hide anything from God. And the more we try to hide things from Him, the more we die a slow, painful spiritual death that left untended to can lead us to an eternal hell where we will spend eternity in torment separated from the God who came to try to redeem us. Folks, this is serious business this morning. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, He's saying that He's come to tell us the truth and expose the secret lies that we tell ourselves and hold in our hearts that our lives might be amended. Therefore, the spiritual question that I might be asking myself is not how am I doing in comparison to another person, but how am I doing in the sight of God? The Bible puts it this way, what must I do to be saved? That's the constant question in the New Testament. What must I do to be saved? So friends, I want to be crystal clear about the gospel this morning because there's so much confusion about the nature of salvation and sadly so much equivocation when it comes to the very truths of God. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus and Jesus alone is the salvation of the world. The collect for this morning that we prayed says it this way. We have no power within ourselves to help ourselves. And again, all God's people said, Amen, Amen when we prayed that prayer. I have no power to save. St. Paul says it this way in the book of Romans. Who will save me from this body of death? 
He knows that he can't save himself. You see, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we are simply dead in our sins and doomed to an eternity apart from God. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who has that power to save us from our sins by his mercies and by his merits that we have the hope of eternal life in him and with him. This is what the Bible means when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And again, this is what St. Paul expounds upon when he writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, For God, sinned, uh, God demonstrates His love to us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the essence of the gospel. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve. He endured the judgment of God on our behalf that we might no longer endure eternal punishment for our sins. Now, pause and think about eternity for just a minute. You there with me? Eternity. I mean, eternity, it goes on and on and on. That's a long, long time to spend apart from God. But the gift of grace is the pardon that we receive from Him, that we might be with Him forever, that we might return to Him after this life. Therefore, when Jesus calls us to repent lest we perish, He is inviting us to receive forgiveness, to receive grace, to accept the gift of salvation that He and He alone has won for us on the cross so that we do not come before the judgment seat of God in fear of punishment, but in faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith in Jesus Christ comes not by comparing ourselves to other people, but by considering our own lives in the sight of God. Friends, we have to stop looking around horizontally, and we have to start looking vertically. That's the centerpiece of how it works. Backing off of what social media tells us about who we are, or even our closest friends tell us about who we are, and taking seriously what God says about who we are. And so this is the illustration of the fig tree that Jesus gives us to contemplate this morning. It's such a beautiful and powerful image for us to hold on to. I hope I can do justice in laying this image out before us. You see, God the Father is the one who has planted this fig tree. You and I, so to speak, are the tree that He has planted, and Jesus, if you will, is the vine dresser. God the Father comes searching for fruit on this fig tree. It's natural that the tree should produce fruit, right? But for some reason, it hasn't. This can be called the sin in our lives that's preventing us from producing the fruit that God created us to produce. And so when he comes finding that the tree has not produced the fruit that it was created to produce, he commands the vine dresser to cut it down. Cut down the tree. And he's just in making that declaration. Yet in the midst of this just judgment of God the Father... God the Son makes His appeal for mercy. 
pleading that if the tree were just given one more chance, if it were just given one more year, if the vine dresser could tend to it, and if it were then to produce the fruit, let it live. Let it live. But if it continues to not produce the fruit, then okay, cut it down. Notice, my friends, notice that the time is short. The time is short. We don't know when the general judgment of God is going to take place. We don't even know when we're going to die. Therefore, the time is short. When Jesus calls us to repentance, He doesn't say tomorrow, next week, if you have time, if you feel like it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, lest you perish. Notice that the time is short. Notice that the owner of the tree is just in His judgment. And notice the appeal to mercy and to grace. And then, my friends, let's notice the plan. Let's see how this unfolds. It is the vine dresser himself who intends to repair the tree. He says that he himself will dig up the soil around the base of the tree. He says that he himself will provide the fertilizer that the tree needs to grow and produce the fruit that it was designed to produce. My friends, this is, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We no longer have to live in fear of what God will do to us when He finds us. We already know what He'll do. He'll provide the nurture and the food that we need. The question is whether or not we'll be willing to receive it. Will we allow Jesus to till the soil of our hearts, excavating the dirt that has been drained of all of its nutrients and replacing it with freshly fertilized Soil. You see, I learned a lot from this garden that Margie planted in our backyard. And do you know what that freshly fertilized soil contains? It contains the Bible, which is the Word of God. My friends, are you reading your Bible on a regular basis? Are you feeding on the Word of life? What does the Scripture say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. And there are a lot of words in the New Testament. By every word. You and I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. My friends, that freshly fertilized soil is the sacraments of the church. Do you take them to your comfort and to your nourishment? On a regular basis, the Eucharist, confession, unction, those normal and ordinary means of grace by which Jesus promises that He'll show up. And not just show up to be present with us, but to heal us, to restore us. The sacraments are means of grace that God gives for our comfort and for our nourishment. My friends, the freshly fertilized soil is the fellowship of the church. Do you truly know the people of Christ the Redeemer as your family? Do you truly know one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what the Scriptures call us to, or is the life of the church just a fast food restaurant for you? 
These are the critical concerns of the kingdom of God. So I want to lay before you the vision of what it means to be the church. Not my vision, but God's own vision of the church. This is what it means to be that tree that bears fruit in the kingdom of God. If you look with me at this scripture. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It gives us a picture of that tree that bears fruit. This is the church. This is what it means to be the church. They devoted themselves... Now, I could stop and preach a whole second sermon just on that idea. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. Everyone, everyone was filled with awe and wonder at the signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. There there are no Lone Ranger Christians each one running off to do his own thing with Jesus in one hip pocket and the Bible in the other. They were all together in their community. And they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. This was a manifestation of their devotion. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And what did the Lord do? He added daily to their number those who were being saved. Friends, let me close by focusing on the fruit that I hope and pray will be born here at Christ the Redeemer. First, we will never, ever We will never, ever fit ourselves for the kingdom of heaven by comparing ourselves to another person. That's not the gospel. That's not how it works. God doesn't measure us or judge us on a relative scale of goodness. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith, not by works, that no man may boast before the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is not a race. It's not a competition Heaven, it turns out, is it's a family. Heaven is a family. Heaven is a family of sinners who have been saved by grace. It's not full of people who are perfect by their own merits, but it's full of people who are being perfected by the merits and mercies of Jesus Christ. So I ask you this question. My friends, have you truly opened your hearts to Jesus Christ? Have you opened your lives to grace upon grace upon grace? Have you given yourselves wholeheartedly to His grace and to His love? Will you, in other words, let Him in to do the work that He already wants to do? To feed us and to nourish us and to fit us for the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the first fruit of my hope. That the gospel is preached and received here at Christ the Redeemer. Second, will you cooperate with him by investing your first fruits in the life of this parish? Notice what the believers devoted themselves to. And I continue to hold up what wise Jessica Tetrick said. Devoting ourselves to something means we're willing to give up other things to do that. What have we devoted ourselves to? And as we devote ourselves to those things, 
ponder, think about what God did in their midst. As the apostles, as the disciples, as the followers of Jesus chose to put him first. And note that they didn't do it individually, running off to their own activities. They did it corporately together. They studied the scriptures with each other. They shared in fellowship with one another. They went to church with one another. They prayed with one another. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's a communal effort. And as they did these things, as they devoted themselves to these things, the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. My friends, whatever else we may or may not do as a congregation, this is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to be the church. To devote ourselves to a certain set of beliefs and practices and wait and watch to see how God produces the fruit of salvation in us and through us and among us. So I, I don't know the desires of your hearts. I don't know what gets you up out of bed each morning, what motivates you to go through your day. But as your priest and your pastor, these are the desires of my heart. My deepest desire and the greatest longing of my heart is that Christ the Redeemer becomes a congregation that looks like that, that acts like that, that is devoted like that, a people who devote themselves to these things above all things. In fact, I'm so dedicated to it. You who are on the vestry on the ministry council, you know we've been studying this passage for several meetings now, and we'll continue to study this passage. In fact, I hope that you've taken a screenshot of this or written it down somewhere because my invitation is that all of this congregation would devote themselves to the study of this passage, that we would embrace these truths and eventually we would embody these truths as a congregation and we would continuously and constantly do that until we see the fruit of salvation rising up in our midst, not just among us, but running out to the ends of the earth, right? That's the gospel, that it will be preached in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even unto the ends of the earth, and we have the opportunity, the God-given opportunity, to participate in that. This is God's invitation to us. And I hope you're hearing not just a message from a mediator this morning. But I hope somehow the Holy Spirit has breathed into the words that God has given me to say. That we might take seriously the invitation and the call to participate. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I do know what we're called to do. The apostles devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship and the prayers. The believers had all things in common and they distributed to each one according to his need. And the community was in awe and wonder at the things that were going on and God added daily to their number those who were being saved.